you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. So we're continuing this morning in our series uh, through the seven I am statements that John records of Jesus. Uh, We uh, last looked at Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said that uh, in the context of raising Lazarus from the dead. This great miracle of raising a dead man back to life. And as we saw in John chapter 11, that event, that miracle... Uh, led to the Pharisees plotting to put Jesus to death. They were afraid that in response to this miracle and all of the amazing things that Jesus was doing, that more people would go after him instead of following them. They were afraid that more people would believe in Jesus, and so they plotted to put Jesus to death. That event started this chain reaction of events that lead to where we find ourselves today in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 takes place on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The night that he would go and pray in the garden of Gethsemane. The night that he would be arrested and would ultimately lead to his death at the cross. But what John records in starting in chapter 13 and then going all the way into chapter 17 is Jesus' last few moments of teaching with his disciples before his departure. He, he starts in chapter 13 with washing the disciples' feet in this amazing act of humility and service. And then he gives instructions about what his disciples should expect after Jesus departs. And then it ends in chapter 17 with the longest prayer that we have recorded in scripture from Jesus to his father. It all takes place in in that upper room where Jesus had a Passover meal with his disciples right before he went to the cross. So that's where we find ourselves as we come into uh, John chapter 14. And we're going to focus primarily on verses 1 through 7 this morning. Uh, But I'd like for us to go back to verse 31 of chapter 13 and read through verse 14 of chapter 14. Uh, so that we can just get some context of where we find ourselves here in John chapter 14. So would you read with me, beginning in John 13, verse 31. Judas has just left the room to go betray Jesus, and this is what comes next. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, 
will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So my one-year-old daughter, Selah, is a people person. She loves people. Even from just the time she was a few months old, she loved being where people were. She loves church. She loves all the attention. She loves all the people. She loves going to the store. She loves parties. She thinks they're always for her. She loves people. And as a result of that, she hates whenever Alyssa or I leave her in a room by herself. We, we might be gone for five seconds, and she bawls. I mean, she cries and cries, and you would think that we were abandoning her forever. I mean, she cries and cries and cries, and I mean, never mind the fact that most times we're going into the other room to get something for her. <laughs> we're going to get her something that she needs or something that she, you know, wanted, and, but she doesn't realize that. She doesn't understand that we're leaving for her sake, and she doesn't understand that even if we're only gone for five seconds, it, it's, we're not abandoning her. We're not hurting her by leaving her. It's good for her that we would leave and go to the other room, but she just doesn't understand that every time we leave, we're going to come back. She doesn't understand that just because we leave doesn't mean that we don't still care about her. Well, as we come to John 14, we, we find the disciples in a similar kind of position. Jesus is about to depart. He's about to leave them. And what this text indicates is that they're troubled in their hearts because Jesus is leaving them. And what Jesus wants to bring to his disciples is a word of comfort that says, just because I'm leaving you does not mean I am abandoning you. 
just because I will not be physically present with you right now does not mean that I am not caring for you. Now, those of us who are disciples of Jesus today may not be troubled in the same way that the disciples were, because the disciples, this is all they ever knew, Jesus in the flesh. For those of us who follow Jesus today, we've, all we've ever known is Jesus not physically being with us. And so maybe we don't, our hearts aren't troubled in the exact same way of the disciples. But if you think about it, we're following a Lord that we have never seen. We're giving our lives to a Savior who we believe exists, who we've never seen with our own eyes whose voice we've never heard, whose hands we've never touched. And if we think about that, sometimes that can be troubling to us who are very sensory, who are used to believing in things that we can see and we can touch and we can hear. As Jesus talks to his disciples and prepares them for his departure, he gives them words of comfort, words that he wants to comfort their hearts while he is not physically present with them. And the same words that Jesus tells to his disciples as he leaves them in order to be a comfort to them are, are words that ought to comfort us as we live with the reality that we are trusting in a Lord we cannot see. These ought to be words to us that are comforting because we also follow a Lord that is not physically present with us. And as he says in the very first verse of chapter 14, Jesus wants us to hear this message. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus says to disciples who are dealing with the reality of Jesus not being physically present, trust me. Trust me. The main thing that I think Jesus wants us to see in this text today is that we can trust Jesus to bring us safely home. We can trust Jesus to bring us safely home. As we dive into this text today, the first thing that we ought to do is to step back and just consider the context of where this passage exists. This passage uh, happens at a, at a turning point in the Gospel of John. At the beginning of chapter 13, John writes that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. This idea of the hour of Jesus is something that has come up several times in the Gospel of John. In fact, there's times when John emphasizes that earlier Jesus' hour had not yet come. For instance, there was a time when people tried to kill Jesus and they were not able to succeed because his hour had not yet come. The hour that God had appointed for him to die had not come yet, and so they could not kill him. But up until this point, the emphasis has been on the hour not coming. Well, this is the point at which the hour has come. Now is the time. Now is the hour that Jesus has come for, the hour in which he would depart to the Father. And as we think about that reality, we can step back even further and think about how this moment in history, how it's placed within the larger timeline of what 
of Jesus' um, ministry and his life, but not only that, his existence as God. Jesus is returning to the Father because that's where he came from. He's going back to his Father's house, heaven, because that's where he existed before. The Bible, as it reveals God, reveals that God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one God. And so Jesus, God the Son, has existed for all of eternity. At creation, God, in three persons, one God, created all things. In fact, the Bible says that the Father created all things through God the Son. So Jesus was there at creation, God the Son, creating all things. And then from the time that man fell, that man rebelled against God and brokenness entered into the world and corruption entered into the world, God has been promising a Savior. The whole Old Testament anticipates the coming of God's salvation. And at times it seems like God is promising that God himself will save, and at times it seems like God is promising a human savior, and what, as it turns out, it's both. Jesus, God the Son, who has existed for all of eternity in the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who is totally satisfied, totally perfect, totally holy, takes on human flesh. He enters into this creation that he made, and Jesus exists as totally God and now totally human. And he comes to earth and he lives and he ministers and he teaches and he makes disciples. And he comes and offers this message of eternal life for those who would trust in him. And then as we are coming at the moment that we're at right now in this timeline, Jesus is getting ready to, to go to the cross. Where he would die as a sacrifice for sinners and rise again and conquer death and ascend to his father where he is now seated at the father's right hand but what we see in scripture is that god the father and god the son as jesus ascends to the father then send the third person of the trinity the holy spirit to be with god's people at this time god the holy spirit is is with all who trust in jesus with god's people and jesus promised that even though he is leaving he would return And that's the promise that we await right now. Jesus returned to come and inaugurate a a new era where all things are made new. A new heaven and a new earth where he would set up his reign where, where God's people would live in heaven on earth for all of eternity in the presence of Jesus. Well, that's the timeline from eternity past to eternity future. That's this big picture that all of Scripture unfolds for us. And while we can see that in Scripture, the disciples here in John 14 could not see that big picture. All they ever knew, as we said, was Jesus in the flesh. And they were starting to get this idea that Jesus was going to die, uh, probably because he had been telling them that he was going to die and rise again, but they didn't seem to quite get that in their heads. But Jesus anticipates that he is going to die. He tells them this, and they're starting to get this idea that Wait, Jesus is leaving? He's departing? He's going where? Where are you going? Wait, we don't know where you're going. Where are you going? And so they're troubled. They don't understand how this can be good for them that Jesus would depart. The disciples didn't have this 
full picture, but we do. And the same words, as we said, that comfort them are words that can comfort us who live now in the waiting. Just as the disciples were anticipating this time when they were going to be without Jesus physically, we now exist in this same period where Jesus is not physically with us. So what is it that Jesus wants us to know? What is it that's to give us comfort in the waiting? What is it that's to give us comfort and peace and hope and to calm our troubled hearts as we are waiting for Jesus? Well, I think there's two main things that Jesus emphasizes here that ought to give us comfort as we wait for Jesus. Comfort as we are not physically with Jesus right now. And that, and first is, Jesus has prepared a place for you. Jesus has prepared a place for you. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you belong to him, he has prepared a place for you. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus was returning to God the Father. He was returning to his Father's house where he had existed for all of eternity. And he was going back there. He was going to heaven. Now, heaven is that place where God exists. Now, God is present everywhere. Scripture teaches that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But Scripture also teaches that there are certain places where God makes his presence more known than others. And heaven, as Scripture reveals, is the place where God's presence is most fully experienced. God is everywhere, but heaven is the place where God's presence is most fully experienced. Heaven is where God's glory is put fully on display. Heaven is the place where the angels and the saints experience the fullness of God's blessings. Because heaven is the place where God is most present, heaven is a place where sin is not present. Heaven is a place free from the corruption of sin. Free from temptation. Free from strife. Because God is fully present there. It's a place where God is worshipped. It's a place where God is fully obeyed. It's a place where God's will is always done. It's a place where those who are there experience eternal life. And let's be really clear. Uh, there, there are a lot of ideas about heaven. But the reason why heaven is great. The reason why it's a place that we should long for. The reason why heaven is amazing is that God is there. His presence is experienced most fully. Heaven is great because God is there. The destination that Jesus is going to and the destination that he wants to take us to is less about a place and more about a person. The joy of heaven, the wonder of heaven is the person, God 
the Father who we can experience forever. Jesus had experienced this for all of eternity, the glory of that, the joy of that. And in this great act of humility and sacrifice, he left behind his glory to come and save sinners like you and me. And at this moment in John 14, Jesus is returning. He's going back to his father's house, to heaven. But he's not, again, abandoning his disciples. Jesus is going, he says, to prepare a place for his disciples in the amazing heaven. Uh, whenever we found out, I'm going to tell a second Salo story. Um, whenever we found out that Alyssa was pregnant with Salo, we were about to move here. And so whenever we were looking for houses, that became really important because we were looking for a house that had room for a baby. And so we found this house, and oh, this is going to be great, and this is going to be baby's room. And uh, we, we came, and pretty soon after we started getting settled in, we were getting that room that was Sayla's room ready. Uh, you know, painted the walls and put together the crib, and Alyssa put all the girly stuff on the walls, and uh, we, we just got this room. We were preparing this place, and, and even before she was born, we would just go in that room and just sit there and look and say, man, do you believe this is where our, this is where our baby is going to be? This is where our daughter is going to sleep. Or in her case, not sleep very much. But that's where we're wanting her to sleep. And then whenever we brought her home from the hospital, we, there was this special moment where we got to bring her into the house and say, hey, you, do you want to see the room that we prepared for you? And we brought her in there, and of course she had no idea what was going on. But... It was just such a special moment because this was, this was a place for her. It was a place prepared. It, it was a place where she belonged. And as Jesus goes to his father's house, he is promising to all of us who are his disciples that same place, that same belonging, that, that same intentionality of I'm preparing this place for you. I'm making a place where you belong, where my father's home is your home. The place where I have dwelled for all of eternity in glory and in joy. I, I want you to share in that. I, I'm making a room for you. And, and notice he says, in my father's house are many rooms. There's plenty of space for anyone to trust in Jesus and, and have belonging and home in heaven with God forever. There is a place for us to belong prepared by Jesus. So what does he mean he's going to go and prepare a place for you? Does he get up to heaven and find everything in disrepair and say, oh brother, I got to clean this place up before Peter gets here? Or does he think, oh I need to paint the walls and I need to put up stuff? To no, he so what does it mean, though? He is going to prepare a place. Well, first and foremost, that night as Jesus sat around that table and he told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them, he meant he was going to prepare a place for them at the cross. He was going to the cross in order to prepare a place for us in heaven. Because before this, apart from that act there was a place that we belonged but it wasn't heaven 
We only belong on our own to the domain of darkness. We don't have a home in heaven if Jesus did not go and prepare a place for us at the cross. Apart from Jesus, we belong not in a place where God's glory is put on display and where his blessings are put on display. But we belong in a place where you experience God, but not the fullness of his blessings. You experience the fullness of his wrath and fury against sin, against lawbreakers, against rebels. Apart from Jesus, we belong in a place that is not prepared for us by Jesus, but a place that scripture says is prepared for the devil and his angels to experience eternal death. That's the place that we belong apart from Jesus because we have rebelled against God. We've broken his law. We've defied our creator. We've set ourselves up as king in place of the true king and God of all things. So when Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, first and foremost, he is leaving that night to go to the cross to prepare a place He was going to the cross where he would be separated from the Father. He who would experience closeness with the Father for all of eternity and glory did something that had never happened before, that he had never experienced before. He was separated from his Father such that he would say with the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was as separated from his Father as was divinely possible. So that he could prepare a place for us to experience closeness to the Father. He took the fullness, he drank the full cup of the wrath of God. So that we would not have to taste a drop. He took the punishment that we deserved. He he took the place that we deserved. He took our place on the cross so that we would have a place in heaven. He died to prepare a place for us. He rose to prepare a place for us. And he ascended to the Father, to that place, to his Father's house, where he has a place prepared for everyone who trusts in his cross for forgiveness. He has a place for everyone who trusts in his resurrection for eternal life. He has a place for everyone who is waiting for our Savior to come and take us to himself. And that is the good news of the waiting that we are in right now. We are waiting for a time when Jesus will come again. The one who went to prepare a place is going to come and take us to that place. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4 earlier about this hope of Jesus coming back so that we would be with him. Physically experiencing the fullness of his presence forever. We read about the good news that Jesus is going to come back. Paul wrote there that we don't grieve like those who don't have hope because Jesus, when he comes back, is going to bring with him those who die, who belong to Jesus, who
who die before his coming. All those loved ones that we know and love who trusted in Jesus and who have died before Jesus comes. He's going to bring them with him. They're going to be resurrected to new glorified bodies in which we will live for all of eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. And then the rest of us who, who are still remaining at the time that Jesus comes, we will be resurrected to new glorified bodies. We all will be together and we will all be with Jesus forever. We will be physically present just like Jesus was in this room, but infinitely better. And for all of eternity. The hope that we have is that Jesus has prepared a place for us. There is a place where you belong if you've trusted in Jesus. And that place is a person. It's God the Father. As we embrace what Jesus is saying here, this gives us comfort in the face of death. Whether it's a sudden death of a loved one, our own imminent death, the impending death of someone we love, we are all touched by death. We all have to face that reality. And these words can give us great comfort, even in the face of death. Because even as we leave behind all that we've ever known, even as we cross into a world that we don't, haven't seen, that we haven't touched, that we haven't experienced. Jesus tells us that there is a place on the other side for us. There is a place with his Father for us. And so however much uh, unsureness, unsurety that we have in this life, however much turmoil there is in this life, however much there's, there's doubt and there's confusion in this life, we have on the other side a confident, a confidence in the home that Jesus has prepared for us. We know that if we trust in Jesus, we will be with him in his presence for all of eternity. This truth that Jesus has prepared a place for us should also remind us that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Increasingly, Christians... Uh, in our country, in our culture, uh, feel a sense of homelessness as we are increasingly marginalized or as we are increasingly um, experiencing a, a world that is, is going very fast away from the Lord. And as we experience that homelessness, that feeling of we don't belong here, uh, it's not something to grieve. It, it's a reminder that we were never meant to be at home here. This was never meant to be the place where we felt like we belonged. This is never meant to be the place that was home. No, the place for those who follow Jesus is with the Father. The place where our citizenship is, the place where our home is, is in heaven with God himself. And so we don't need to be discouraged by a sense of feeling like, a, feeling like we don't belong here and now because this world is not our home. And the fact that this world is not our home also should remind us that this is not what we should be living for. This life, here and now, is not what we should be living for. This world and everything that we know in this temporary life is all fading. Our lives themselves are fading. 
the possessions that we acquire, we can't take with us. Uh, the legacy that we try to build for ourselves it, is something that's not going to last. Everything in this life, everything in this world is going to fade. It's going to pass away. What Jesus reminds us is that our true home is something that can never be taken away from us. What we have in heaven is something that is eternal and permanent because he purchased it for us. And so what today, what are you living for? Are you living for things that are fading away? Are you giving your life to things that are just going to be nothing in a few short years? Or are you living today for things that you're going to care about a million years from now? Are you living today for that which matters for eternity? And I don't mean that, oh, well, you know, I need to quit my job and go be a missionary. And that, you know, that, no, I'm, I mean, in your job today, are, are you doing your job? Are you in your work, in the calling that God has placed on your life, living for that which matters for eternity? Are you doing your work as unto the Lord? Are, are you seeing where you are, not as, the, not as what to live for, but are you living for eternity where God has placed you? Knowing that this world is not our home, that Jesus has prepared a place for us, ought to motivate us to live for eternity, to live for things that will matter a million years from now. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he has prepared a place for us. And second, we need to know that Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father. So in verse 4, Jesus says to his disciples, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas pipes up, uh, No, we don't. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going if we don't even know where it is that you're going? And Jesus says, No, you, you do know the way because I am the way. You know the way because you know me. I am the way. And what's so critical here that we must see is that the way is not a path. The way is a person. Just like the destination is not just a place, the destination is a person, God the Father. So the way is not a path. The, the way is a person. The way is Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we recognize that because this is what separates the true gospel from all forms of man-made religion. Uh, there are countless forms of man-made religion. But what they all have in common, separate from the true gospel, what, what they all have in common is that they are a path. They are a path of do these things in order to get to God. Do this and therefore you will receive eternal life. But what Jesus comes with as the way is not a path, but a person himself who does everything required for us. He doesn't come with a path of things we ought to do. He comes as a person who does everything for us. This is what separates Jesus and the true gospel from every form of man-made religion, including man-made religion in the name of Christianity that says, follow all of these rules and then you will get eternal life. No, the true gospel, the true way to the Father is Jesus. The true way to the Father is a person who does the work for us, not a path of works that we ought to do. And Jesus is the only 
the only way to the Father. As Acts 4.12 tells us, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to God because he's the only way that's been given to get to God. You know, those who hear Christians saying that Jesus is the only way uh, will accuse us sometimes of being closed-minded. And if there were many ways to God and we just said our way is the only way, then yeah, that would be closed-minded. But the fact of the matter is there aren't many ways to God. Apart from Jesus, there are zero ways to God. The fact that there is a way at all is an incredible gift of God's grace because no path would have ever sufficed. No list of rules could ever have brought us to God. No way of being in the world could ever have earned us the privilege of eternal life. Only the person, Jesus Christ, who did everything for us could possibly bring us to the Father. Only Jesus Christ is the way we must come to the Father. Jesus has done what no one else could do. He made a way where there was no other way. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, the author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus did through the cross what no one else could do. He made a way through his death and through his resurrection. He made a way for us to be forgiven of the sin that left us with a place in hell. And he made a way for us to receive eternal life so that he would have a place for us in heaven. God does not expect us to figure out a path to him. He gives Jesus the way. And likewise, God doesn't expect us to just figure out who he is, he gives Jesus as the truth, the ultimate revelation of who God is. Uh, Hebrews 1, in uh, the beginning of that chapter, starts by telling us that God had spoken through the prophets and in various times and various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. Jesus is the ultimate truth, the ultimate revelation of who God is. God doesn't just expect us to figure it out, he gives us the way. He gives us the truth. And likewise, he doesn't expect us to figure out how to live forever. He gives us Jesus, who is the life. We've seen this all throughout these I am statements, right? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world so that you would walk in life. He said in chapter 10 that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life. And then two weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday, we heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. God doesn't expect us to figure things out on our own. He doesn't ask us to follow a path. He gives us the way. He gives us a person. He gives us Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. 
would you look with me at verse 7 again? All of this kind of culminates right here. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So we said before that the destination is not just a place, it's a person, it's God the Father. And likewise, the way is not a path, it's a person, it's God the Son. And this all adds up, it all makes sense because Jesus is the way to the destination because he and the Father are one. They have been one for all of eternity, they, they, they will be one for all of eternity future. Jesus is the way to the Father because Jesus and the Father are one. So he says, come to me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he invites us to come to him as the way to the Father. And, and this, this brings us to this question. Are you trusting a path or a person? For your eternal life, are you trusting in a path or a person? In order to be received by God, in order to have the blessing of God and the favor of God, are, are you trusting in a path, doing things, or are you trusting in a person who has done everything required for you? This is the question we must ask because there is no path that will suffice we can't follow enough rules we can't do enough good things we can't earn god's favor we can't earn a place in heaven the only way to the place in heaven is through the person jesus christ who is the way and who has already done everything needed to prepare that place for us so as you look at your life what are you banking on what are you counting on where's your confidence is it in the path that you're walking, the things that you do, the life that you live, or is it in a person, Jesus Christ, who is the way to the Father? It's important that we keep this question in mind also as we share the gospel. Remember, as we tell others about this Jesus that we love and know and want them to love and know, we're inviting people not to a path, as in, do these things and you can come to God. We are inviting them to a person. We are inviting people to Jesus, to know and love Jesus, to find in Jesus the one who has done everything needed for salvation. We are inviting people to a person. We need to remember that. We also need to remember that as we talk with people who, who call themselves Christians. Because oftentimes, especially in, in our culture where where there's been a, a heavy influence of Christianity, where uh, at times church becomes just part of the social structure, uh, we need to consider, are, are we talking to someone who is trusting in a path or trusting in a person? When, when people call themselves a Christian, are they saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I go to church and I do all these things, and, but, but do they know Jesus? Are they trusting in Jesus? I think sometimes we miss a large mission field in front of us when we miss the fact that there are many people who have chosen a man-made religion that is 
that they call Christianity. It's not the true biblical gospel, but there are many people who are trusting in a path, a man-made religion, where Jesus is the name of their idol, where the Bible is the rule book that they're following in order to earn their way to God. So we need to consider it as those who want people to trust in Jesus as the way. Are we listening to someone? Is someone telling us that they're trusting in a way, in a, in a path, in rules, in what they are doing? Or are they trusting in Jesus who has done everything for them? Because Jesus says in Matthew that many on the last day will come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do this in your name? Did we not do this in your name? He says, I never knew Because the point is not what we do for God, it's what God does for us through the person, Jesus. And so the question we all must ask for ourselves is, are we trusting in a person, Jesus, or are we just trusting in the path that we're walking? And likewise, as we share the gospel, we are reaching out to people who, by nature, want to make their own path, by nature, want to find their own path to God, and who are leading themselves down a dead end. We're inviting people off of the path of self-righteousness, off of the path of man-made religion, off of the path of empty religion, and to the person, Jesus, who went to the cross to make a way to the Father, who rose again and ascended to the Father to prepare a place for us, who is coming back even as we wait for him. He has promised he will come back and bring us to himself, to a person, to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, who we will be with forever. And so, may we trust in the person, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life to bring us safely home to the Father. He is the way. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be where you dwell. We want to be in the place where we can experience your presence and your fullness forever. And Lord, the only way, the only way that we can have confidence to come to you is not a path, but it's the person Jesus, God the Son, who came to take our place, who went to the cross to prepare a place for us, and who is seated at your right hand now, and who will come again. So Lord, I I pray that all of us would examine our hearts and ask, where is our confidence? Where is our trust? And Lord, may we place our confidence only in Christ alone. We have no hope on our own. We have no hope in a path where the only way we can come to you is through Christ alone. So Lord, may that be where our trust is. May that be the way that we are trusting in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.